I think this is a phenomenal time to continue to buy, but be very cautious because like every other market, you know, that is bullish. This is a very bullish market. There's a great level of aggression right now in the marketplace. A lot of people want to buy. People have been on the sidelines for nine months, assuming the worst, and it didn't happen. And really nothing bad's happened. I mean, if you compare today's multifamily market with 12 months ago, you know, what's the difference, right? It looks the same. So to me, I think that you are going to see a increase in competition, a very significant increase in competition. But that is not a reason to stay out of the marketplace because the Fed's given us another five years of a glorious multifamily market. We just have to be careful not to overpay. Welcome to the Prosperity Through Multifamily Real Estate Investing Podcast, brought to you by Blue Oak Capital. If you are looking to take your real estate investing to the next level and learn how you can achieve your financial success by investing in multifamily real estate, then this show is for you. Our mission is to help you improve your education and learn proven strategies from industry leaders to help you master multifamily investing. Now here's your hosts, Cody Laughlin, John Beatty, and Brian Alfaro. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Prosperity Through Multifamily Real Estate Investing Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Cody Laughlin, and joining me is my co-host, Mr. Brian Alfaro. Brian, good afternoon to you, my friend. Good afternoon, Cody. Nice to see you. You as well. You as well. I know Brian is exceptionally excited about today's episode because our very special guest returning back to the show is the one and only mad scientist himself, Mr. Neil Bawa. Neil, welcome back. Thanks for having me back on the show. Good to be back. Absolutely, man. We're really, really excited to have you on. Brian was so disappointed last episode because I don't think he got to be with us that he didn't talk to me for like a week. I thought I was going to have to shut down the show, man. <laughs> Neil, I actually got into multifamily uh, and met Cody and John through your uh, your boot camp, your, your first E1, I think. So uh, wow. definitely a, a follower. Yeah. That's awesome. So yeah, there you go. So awesome. we, we owe all of our future success to you, Neil. There you go. <laughs> Now, the success is go to you. The future failures can come to me. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Well, Neil, last time we spoke, it was give or take September of last year. We, your episode aired, uh, which was episode number 38 for the listeners who mm-hmm. want to go back and, and tune in uh, around mid-October. Had a great conversation and really kind of wanted to lead off from where we left off. Uh, you know, we, we discussed some surprises that we saw in 2020 with the impact of COVID across multiple asset classes. We kind of talked about some bold predictions and uh, we got a quite a lot of interest in downloads from that episode and a lot of great feedback. So let's kick off from there, man. And yeah, I think when we last discussed, we, we were discussing valuations and increased economic vacancies and how that's going to impact our valuation. But What's interesting is we haven't really seen that correction yet. And we have uh, not. Yeah. So yeah. let's kind of go from there. What's your perception on that? And so I was puzzled because back in September, I was thinking, you know, I had a very strong belief that the virus would have its kind of its, its third coming would be the worst one. And so I turned out to be right on that one. And obviously that leads to uh, an unemployment rise. But what we haven't seen is a increase or, or significant increase in delinquency. There's no doubt that there is a statistical increase in delinquency in Class C properties and a somewhat less you know, increase in Class B properties. Class A actually have had 
have fared the best in terms of delinquency, though they've fared the worst in terms of occupancy. So their vacancies shot up, but their delinquency levels have been extremely good all the way through. So I was studying different classes. I was looking at A's and B's and C's and saying, you know what, by now I expected to see more delinquency on the C side. Why is this delinquency not happening? And also, why is the stock market so high? Because, you know, typically middle, middle of a pandemic, you know, 20, 30 million people losing their jobs, stock market typically isn't that high. And so I started to study that. I became obsessed with that idea in the October, November timeframe. And so if you guys are okay with it, I want to kind of share my insights from that research, right? So lots of different locate the places, the New York Times was the, the kind of the biggest single uh, place that this data comes from. So COVID had a bizarre impact on Americans' incomes and savings and completely unexpected impact. If I was to ask, you know, just grab 20 people on a street, take a microphone and go there and say, hey, do you think, do you think uh, people's incomes increased during COVID or decreased America's in in incomes? I think 20 out of 20 would say it decreased. And if I said, hey, do you think people's savings increased or decreased during the pandemic? I think 20 out of 10, 20 would say the savings decreased, right? That's what makes sense. That's what people think. That's what I thought. That's what most people are thinking. The reverse has happened. So here's what has happened. In terms of wage loss, America in the first nine months of the pandemic only lost $42 billion in wages. Now, that seems like a large amount of money, but when you consider the fact that we've got you know, 20 or 30 million people out of work, that's shocking because it's only down 0.5%, right? And the biggest reason for that is America is now a nation of such extreme inequality that the people that have been disproportionately hurt by the COVID you know, uh, pandemic are the people that were earning $14 or below, right? So $14 or below. And while these people, you know, they count as one person just like you and just like me, when it comes on the, to the economic impact of the country, they might count as one in 10, right? That's how the, the country is structured. And it's, it's unfortunate that that's the way it is. So what was happening was we were only losing $43 billion, but we were gaining a lot when it came to income. So the CARES Act gave us $499 billion in additional unemployment benefits, which is 25x higher than the same time frame in 2019. So 25x higher. So 500 billion bucks. 500 billion, the $1,200 checks, stimulus checks before the $600, the additional ones, those were 276 billion. And then the new ones that came in December were another 130 billion, right? And the proprietor's income, which is basically the, the money that businesses make, you'd think that that, oh my God, it's seen a sharp decline. I mean, look at all these theaters out of business, look at all these hotels. It actually was positive 29 billion. And that was because of PPP. EIDL, and all these other benefits. Now, without those benefits, I think America's businesses would have been decimated, and many of them still are. I think that we're going to see tens of thousands of businesses go out. But overall, as a group, right? the theme here is, yes, there is insane amount of pain in businesses and, and people. But as a group, when you look at 330 million people that live in this country, proprietor's income, business income was up 29 billion compared to 2019, right? A shocking number. But there were other kinds of incomes. There was $265 billion in state and local and hospital funds, which didn't even exist in 2019. Now, I take all of these numbers, the negative 43 billion, all these positive numbers, and Americans actually had $1.03 trillion 
in additional income in the first nine months of the pandemic. Who would have thunk it, right? I mean, you, you, you know, if I'd asked you a billion plus or a billion minus, everyone would have picked the billion minus. But $1.03 trillion in additional income over 2019 went into Americans' pockets. You know what the sad part is? Most of it went into pockets that didn't need it, right? The way that things are structured, you know, maybe 200 billion out of that 1 trillion went to people who really needed it, who really deserved it. And then, I mean, I got checks. I don't know why, why they sent checks out to me. I mean, it doesn't make any sense. Fine. You know, whatever. I, I cashed mine. Um, shameless. So, but, but to me, it just didn't make sense. So as an economy, the American economy gained a trillion dollars. But that's only one half of the research that I did. The second half was I wanted to see what happened to spend to, to, to you know, savings, right? So you'd expect that you know, people lost their jobs. Savings would go down. Again, shocked. We spent as a, as a nation, we spent $60 billion more on durable goods, which is, you know, stuff like your new working chair, your gym equipment, your webcam, all of those sorts of things that Americans bought. They bought $60 billion worth of those. They also bought $40 billion worth of extra food compared to last year. That makes sense. So that's $100 billion more that Americans took from their savings. Makes sense so far. Here's the catch. Americans saved $575 billion in services. All those haircuts, lights, vacations, Airbnbs, tickets, concert tickets, all of those savings were $575 billion. The additional spending was only 60 and 40, 100 billion. Also, Americans saved a staggering $59 billion on interest mostly for homes, but all kinds of interest because, you know, interest rates went down. So compared to 2019, there was a $59 billion bonus increase in savings. So once again, America's savings in a completely counterintuitive way were $535 billion higher than they were a year ago. So you look at the nine months of the pandemic, you compare it to the year before, we stashed away, we put away under the mattress $535 billion as a nation, right? Absolutely staggering to me that that happened. And obviously, there's long-term damage that comes from this pandemic that might even this out in the future. I fully expected this. But at the moment, in these in this nine months, we ended up with a trillion extra in income and 535 billion in savings. And we ended up with one and a half trillion dollars. Now that money had to go somewhere, right? So I researched where did that money go? Right? Well, I mean, what do we do with this money? $260 billion out of that $1.5 trillion went into cash. So the Fed had to aggressively increase cash in circulation. As you know, actual cash is only a tiny portion of the US economy, a few percent. They had to really aggressively start printing $50, $100 bills because Americans wanted to stash money under the mattress. $260 billion worth of cash, right? We also saw a 19% increase in commercial deposits. That was a huge increase, but that only accounted for about $500 billion, but we had one and a half trillion dollars extra. And the rest of that money, that's what went into stocks, Bitcoin and real estate, right? Not, not to mention GameStop, right? So obviously most of it went into GameStop clearly, right? So, uh, so the, you know, the, all these Reddit people, they're flood, flush, flush with cash, right? They're, they're throwing money on all these stupid things. So, I mean, when I look at it, it took me a month to figure all this stuff out. And then I'm like, okay, this is why 
we're not seeing declining values. Now we're not seeing, there's no evidence that we're seeing increase in multifamily values. So we were at, you know, 166,000 a unit roughly in the US. We saw a 2% decline. And then very quickly, very, very quickly, that 2% decline adjusted. Now we're like 1% above where we were pre-pandemic. So, you know, $1,000 a unit is not a huge increase. Now there are markets that have increased as much as six or 7%. And there are markets that have fallen one or 2%. Very few markets fell more than one or 2% for multifamilies, which shows the inherent strength of the asset class itself. But I, I expected it to fall more. But truthfully, what has happened, and this is the only time in my lifetime that you'll hear me praising the government, by the way, so you might as well want to record it. This is being recorded, right? So good. This is my one time when I'm going to praise the government. When we had the 2008 financial crisis, that was a worldwide crisis. It was a liquidity crunch. All kinds of horrible things were happening in the economy, and they pumped in $800 billion, right? Here, this was, this was kind of an odd sort of event in that, 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 that the economy in 2019 was much stronger. It was a much more robust economy. But when this happened, because no one had any background on what happens when a worldwide pandemic hits, the government actually reacted as well as could have possibly been expected. I think they were freaked out. Everyone was shit scared that this was going to be basically Armageddon or financial Armageddon. So they put in $2 trillion, not counting the December money that we just got, which is $900 billion, So that's $2.9 trillion. Plus, the Fed dropped interest rates directly to zero. Never in history, not even in 2008, has the Fed gone from, okay, here's today's rates. We're going straight in one fell swoop in one day to zero, right? So that I can't say that that was an excess reaction because clearly it wasn't. But I think that it was an appropriate reaction, which is very unusual for governments. It was a highly appropriate reaction. And I, I don't think they did it, meant it to be in, intentional. They, they just threw everything that they had at it and hoped for best it was enough. And as it turned out, it was enough. So as a result, America's economy today, it's, it's you know, Feb 4th, 2021, is actually pretty strong. Underlying fundamentals are returning to normal. Unemployment is dropping again. So I look at weekly claims. They were ticking up in, uh, you know, in October, December. Then they slowed down because, you know, people started getting those $600 checks. So $2,400 for a family. So people, you know, it, it started to kind of slow down a little bit. And, and now we are beginning to see a very nice and gradual decline in unemployment benefits. Now, uh, in new, new people filing for un unemployment, it's still massively elevated, right? So you can't ever compare this to any other time in history. You can't compare 2008. So they're massively elevated, but they're, they're begin there's beginning to be an adjustment in a very positive direction. And so we're seeing strong adjustment. And when I look at the fact that for the first time in history, $1.5 trillion was injected into the American economy, not to mention 200 other countries doing stimulus at the same time, the only time in history when 200 countries have injected stimulus into their economies at the same time, when I look at all of that, I understand why we are not seeing a decline. We're not seeing an increase. We're not seeing a decline. Rents are only projected in multifamily to rise between one and one and a half percent in 2021. So nothing sexy. Home prices, 2021 is projected to be the greatest home price year, both from a sales volume and a home price increase perspective since the 1980s. So we're projecting somewhere between 5.7% and 10% home price increases. We're projecting a 21% increase in sales, 
right? Which is just a mind-boggling number. Any any broker would take 5% increases, but 21% sales volume increases what we're projecting. And so when we look at those numbers, this this single family market is phenomenal. The multifamily market is, I think we should all be pretty happy. You know, I mean, the worst case scenarios were were horrible, but what we've seen is it's steady, Eddie, it's done well. You know, we've whatever two or three thousand dollar per unit losses we had were very quickly corrected within a matter of months. Like we we saw that correction. Now we're again at an all-time high, I think 167 a unit or somewhere in that range. And that's not a bad place to be in. We did not see even a single month of a cap rate decompression, if you want to call it that. We did not see any cap rate increases in any month of the pandemic that I could see from any tracker. So we're seeing flat cap rates. We're not seeing compression, but we are seeing nine out of 10 analysts that I read, whether it's Yardi Matrix or CBRE or Berkadia, Marcus Millichap, nine out of 10 are projecting future cap rate compression because of ridiculously low interest rates. And I'm already beginning to see some evidence of that in leading markets. So the markets that tend to lead the country, you know, Phoenix obviously is a, is a leading market. So I'm beginning to see cap rate compression happen there very quickly. Boise, Idaho is, is uh, red hot. So is Nashville. So I'm looking at these leader markets and saying, yeah, I, I can see that. I can see some evidence that this is the post-pandemic cap rate compression because of the interest rates. And I think that that's going to roll out. So we may not see a very good rent year in multifamily. But I think we are going to see a very strong cap rate year in multifamily. So that's where I stand. A lot of the gloom doom projections didn't come true. And I wasn't overly gloomy. If you remember last time, they were both good and bad that we discussed. But I didn't understand that we had just added a trillion and a half to our economy, which now makes sense when you total it all up, right? So I actually put that into a chart. And I stuck it on my website saying, you guys got to go look at this because nobody really understands this. Like these five categories of spending and these five categories of income add up to a trillion and a half. And, you know, it's what's funny is these these numbers, we, we get so inured to the fact that these are very large numbers. It isn't a billion. It's fifteen hundred billion that got injected into the economy in nine months, right? We'd be happy investing 150 billion into our economy at any point in time. We'd be like all cheering about it, right? 10 times that number came into the US economy. So once again, there are significant long-term damages, tens of thousands of businesses that are holding on for dear life. Lots of them are not gonna survive, right? Simply because this is just taking too long. America's still shut down. Yesterday, only 965,000 people went through the TSA checkpoints in the US. 2.2 million is a typical day, right? So you look at that and you go, ah, then we're not even at 40% of travel, right? Imagine how much that must be hurting retail businesses, travel businesses, hotels, you know, all of these entertainment businesses. I just cannot imagine that they're all going to hold on. Some of them simply cannot go out of business right now because the government is preventing it, right? But obviously, that's going to, that, you know, you, you can't do that indefinitely. So I do, st- we're going to see a very interesting Q1, Q2, and Q3. But I believe that from a pure multifamily perspective, the worst is past us. I don't think we see any kind of distress sales. I don't think that we see any kind of rent drops. I simply don't think that we're going to see much of a rent increase this year. So major markets like Phoenix or, or you know, some of these superstar markets that are growing fast, like Reno, you might see a 3 4% rent increase, which I guess is great. Not for them. You know, Phoenix was 8.5% last year. So obviously, there's a big slowdown. 
but I think that we're past the worst. So very long answer to your question, but, but I thought this was an important question to answer. No, I, I appreciate the elaborate explanation. And you're absolutely right. I think the surprising thing for most everybody, as you very eloquently put it, is the behaviors and the reactions of people that were put in situations where they were furloughed or whatnot, you know, and, and you had these eviction moratoriums and all these government stimulus. It, it was just surprising to see the way that people managed the situation, how they managed the stimulus checks you know, just the overall behaviors. And what's surprising, at least in our very limited research, I, we're nowhere near the, the data-driven experts that you are, but, you know, a lot of business owners and tenants in particular didn't really participate in a lot of these government assistant programs because I guess the way they were structured, it didn't really work in their favor either way, right? So it was just better for them not to participate and it ended up working out for them. Well, some of them did. I mean, I took the government money they were offering these loans that where you didn't have to pay pay any interest on it for a year and then you know you you basically could either return the loans or pay 4% you're still accruing 4% interest mm. right you're just not paying it you're just going to pay it a year later right mm. they offered that money i looked at it and i said we could very potentially need to lend money to our projects we could very potentially have four or five projects upside down. And even if one of them was upside down, it makes sense to take this money. So we took it, right? And we, we had one project with challenges and we ended up lending to them. And now we, you know, we're just going to return the money. So I, I don't fully agree. I think a lot of businesses took money, but Cody, I think they're returning it early. Mm. So because there was this assumption of a worst case scenario, which for so many businesses didn't happen. I mean, again, retail businesses are not part of that. I think the worst has happened for them in so many different ways, because even the worst case scenario, you know, haircutters were not thinking in March last year that in, in Jan this year, you know, half of America's, you know, saloons would still be shut down. So it's a really bad scenario. And, and, and again, we are going to see, you know, repercussions of that for years to come. But I think what the government has done through stimulus A1 and then stimulus two, and now hopefully stimulus three that, that they're talking about is they spread the, the, the slaughter out enough so that it doesn't matter. If you remember, even in 2010, we were talking about, well, there's 3 million foreclosures to come. So the real estate market's going to crash again. You know why it didn't crash? Because a consortium of banks, the top 20 banks got together into a room and said, we have to slow down foreclosures. If we don't slow this down, the value is going to fall to 10% and we're going to kill ourselves. So if you remember, the banks consciously in 2000, late 2009, 2010, slowed the process of floor closure down, allowing the market to recover. And then, you know, some of the, some of the equity came back. So the banks actually, their decision turned out to be really right because by 2012 or 2013, prices were rising again. So they were able to recoup some of that money by simply just holding on uh, as opposed to selling them at fire sale prices. And in a larger way, the, the government stimulus had that impact on the economy. The slaughter is still there, but it's spread out over a year and a half as opposed to being concentrated in two quarters, right? So the US economy dropped 33% in Q2, the greatest drop on record. But, and I hear that all the time. People say that all the time. Oh my God, did you know that there was a 33% drop? Well, how many people are saying that in Q3, the US economy grew by 33%? The identical number, 33% drop, 33% up. But people only mention the down because it's more, uh, I guess, more, you know, you get more attention if you're only giving people the, the bad news, right? You got to do both of those. So it was impressive. The bounce back in Q3 was absolutely impressive. 
I had not seen a forecaster show more than 10% in the bounce back in Q3. But to get to 33, the economy recovered a significant portion of you know, its, its losses. And for the year, we ended up about 25 to 3% net Q GDP loss, which I mean, all things considered was the best case scenario. We're projecting a 3.56% increase in GDP in 2021, which is the best projection we have seen in one and a half decades. One could say, well, yeah, but you know, you're just bringing forward all the growth that you lost last year. And that's true. I mean, if you take last year's negative and this year's positive and you add it together, it basically is one and a half percent, which is what we've got all along. So that's fine. That's fair. But my, my feedback is, yeah, but that, that part is behind us, right? The pain is behind us. So the fact that we could get to three and a half percent GDP growth this year is very exciting to me. Right, because I've already made the sacrifices. One of my properties was going to sell for 30% IRR and ended up selling for 22. So I lost that money. It's done. Now I'm looking forward to the gain from all the, the, the interest rate cuts because some of my properties now, the, the cap rate compression benefits are already there. So we're, we're seeing that in the US economy. I still feel very strongly, and it, this, I feel very strongly that there is a very big upside here to multifamily, but it's on the cap rate side. I'm not seeing any trends that rents are going up significantly fast. I'm not seeing any markets break away and start seeing huge increase in rents. You know, I mean, Yardi tracks this stuff. I mean, anyone that's listening to this, if you don't read the Yardi Matrix monthly rent report, what are you doing? I mean, you're in this business and how much money you make, how much money your investors make is all completely dependent on the rents, right? You know, cap rates, what control do you have over cap rates? But there's a huge variation in rent growth market to market, right? So when I'm reading these, I'm not seeing anybody break away from the pack, to be honest. Phoenix is still ahead. It was still ahead a year ago. It was still ahead two years ago. So that nothing's really changed there. But from what I can see, rent growth this year, I think, is going to be pretty anemic. We might see a huge rent growth next year, but I, I, I don't see how that could be happening with so many people still behind on payments. I just don't think landlords are focused on rent increases. What's up, listeners? This is your host, Cody Laughlin, and I could not be more excited to take a few minutes to tell you that we are finally co-hosting our first live meetup event of 2021. I know there's many of you just like me who have been anxiously waiting the opportunity to go live for networking meetups again, and I couldn't be more excited that that time is finally here. If you're in the Houston MSA on March 11th, then we would absolutely love to see you there. If you haven't done so already, make sure to join the South Texas Multifamily and More Facebook group to stay up to date on this event notification as well as all of our future events. And if you're not in the Houston MSA, don't worry, we will still be hosting our monthly virtual meetup events during the last week of every month. Again, just make sure to join that Facebook group so you can stay up to date on all of our future events. Listen guys, we've been receiving a lot of great feedback in regards to the show and the quality of guests we have been receiving and interviewing. So as always, we really appreciate your feedback. However, as you know, in order for us to continue to attract these high caliber guests to come on the show, we need your help. If you're a fan of the show and think this would be a valuable show for others, then make sure to jump over to iTunes, subscribe to the show, leave us a rating and written review. That's the only way we can continue to increase the show's visibility. So we really appreciate your help in doing so. Lastly, I'm not sure about you guys, but Q1 has started off with a tremendous amount of momentum and we couldn't be more excited about the forecast for this year. So if you're looking for your next investment opportunity, 
or you want to learn how you could potentially partner with us at Blue Oak Capital on our next investment opportunity, then make sure to visit www.blueoakinvest.com forward slash why real estate to receive your free real estate investors guide for busy professionals. Now, stay tuned for the second half of the show. So with the injection of the, you know, the trillions of dollars into the economy, uh, really essentially at such a quick push of the button. And, and I think the benefit of going through the 2008 recession was that we kind of had a playbook, right? We, we didn't sit and wait. Like you said, we reacted immediately. And 2008 so we, was a huge benefit to this recession. I mean, yeah, yeah the, the Fed's reaction time was incredibly quick. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely right, and and, I, and we we controlled the bleeding, <laughs> as you as you mentioned too, but it feels like the monetary policy that we've abided by for however many decades is changing, right? Because now at the push of a button, you can now eject trillions of dollars into the economy, which it's kind of interesting. So, what's your take on on monetary policy? Where do you see that going? Well, I think that. Depending upon the time of day, I might have different opinions on this. Um, I believe that obviously that, you know, this money printing stuff, you can't just continue it infinitely. It doesn't make sense. Your cost of debt is going to spiral out of control. And it already has. I mean, most people don't know this, that a significant portion of all of our tax receipts are simply going to pay interest, let alone to paying you know, principle that I don't think we ever can pay our debt back. I think that's, that's, you know, impossible at this point, but we we're having trouble paying interest. And of course the COVID has helped with that because as you know, worldwide interest rates have crashed. So now we can basically take on more debt because the interest rates are lower. So in, in some sort of way, COVID gave politicians an extended ability to pretend and extend this policy of pretend and extend and just ex- pretend the fact that there is no debt, that there is no end to this nonsensical money printing game. Well, I think they bought themselves another five years. And I'll tell you why. If you look at all the bearish economists, you know, what, does all the, what do all the bearish economists say? They say, no, 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 don't print money because if you print money, foreigners will stop buying your dollar they will go out and buy money from, let's say, the Swiss or the, the, the Europeans or the, the Japanese because those guys are not printing money, right? So be careful because if you print too much, nobody's going to buy your bonds and then you're completely screwed, right? Now, that argument has no, no, makes no sense when all 200 countries in the world are printing at the same time, right? So this is a game where you have to have this balance where if enough countries continue printing money and debasing their currency, I shouldn't be going up, actually, it should be going down, debasing their currency at the same time, all racing to the bottom. If you can maintain, and the Federal Reserve is so much better than, at doing this than politicians, if you can maintain to be in the middle of the pack, nobody ever looks at you and say, you know what, we shouldn't be buying these guys bonds, they're, they're screwed, Right. Now, the fact that we are the reserve currency of the mar- world makes it very unlikely that people will stop buying our bonds at this point, but we don't want to be the odd one out that's too far ahead of everybody else. Now, in terms of debt to GDP, we're pretty good. I mean, you know, we're, we're at around 110% debt to GDP. So what that means is if we have $100 in GDP, we have $110 in debt. That simply means it's not, it's not money that you can pay back, but it means that you have plenty of room to keep paying interest. 
right? So we're in a decent position because you have countries like Japan at 270% debt to GDP, China's at 260% plus their shadow debt, which takes them to 350%. So you look at all these countries and you go, oh, we're pretty decent position compared to them, right? So what's really happened is that that the fear that politicians had that at some point this low interest rate party could end for us, well, they, they don't need to have that fear for the next two or three years because everyone is printing at the same time. So there are no good guys. When everyone's bad, you know, everyone's debt is going to be purchased, right? So I, I feel like we get low interest rates for the next five years. The financial Armageddon, which is 100% sure to come, gets pushed out five or 10 years because of the fact that everyone's printing at the same time, which means that no one looks better than anybody else. So, I mean, as you can see, I'm very bearish on the eventual end of the greatest financial experiment in history, which is we will just keep printing money and no one will notice, right? I know that there's a really, really bad end to this. And, and it's it, the amount of pain that, that you know, happens at that point is gonna make COVID look like a walk in the park. But I think that it's further out now because of COVID. So you're not buying into this decentralization of currency that we've kind of been hearing as of late. And I feel like you mentioned Reddit earlier and and the behaviors we've seen in the stock market as of late. You've been hearing this term float around more. Do you buy into that at all? I am buying into it, but at at a more measured pace than the conspiracy theorists. I think decentralization of currency is a trend, not a fad. And I think Bitcoin's just part of that. I think that people are beginning to figure out different ways of decentralizing from these crazy banks constantly printing money. But the speed at which we are decentralizing, the speed at which you know you look at the total net worth of Bitcoin and you look at the total net worth of all assets in the world, we are decades away from a Bitcoin revolution where we get to the point where the elites have to actually start buying a very large amount of Bitcoin. The elites are doing what they do, which is we'll hold 1% of Bitcoin. So if something goes bad, we can always say we were the pioneers. We already had 1% of our assets in Bitcoin. So they're, they're giving it lip service. And I, I don't think they need to do much more at this point in time. I do think that we will see decentralization. I, I, I also want to point out that things move much slower than we think. Remember, there's a, about a thousand books on Amazon predicting the demise of Japan since 1987. So in 1989 was the last time that the Japanese uh, economy grew really uh, on, on a consistent basis. Since then, you know, up and down, mostly down, and because their population started to drop. So in, as early as 1987, people are saying gloom and doom things about the Japanese economy. Now, technically, you could say these people are right. The Japanese economy is about half the size of what it was in 1989. So it's shrunk, but it didn't crash at any point. There has not been a significant crash in the Japanese economy in the last 21 years of shrinkage. And you could say, well, the Japanese are very disciplined. They pulled it off. And the answer is no. If you kind of look at what they've done over the last 10, 15 years, it doesn't look disciplined at all to me. It simply points out that large economies have inertia and that inertia is very, very, very large. And so for us to get to the point where our world economy becomes destabilized because we're overprinting takes significantly long than most people think. I still think we have another 10 years of basically this scraping along the bottom business before a major domino falls. And when I say a major domino falls, I mean Italy. I mean, you know, because Greece, you know, Greece obviously went bankrupt, but it was too small. Greece was less than 1% of the world economy, right? So 
you know, it was like one, one fifth of 1%, not big enough to cause a major crisis and almost did because the European Union went into recession because of Greece. But what if Italy defaults, right? Italy is one and a half percent of the world economy. So if, if that happens, then the banks will freeze up again because everyone that's holding, holding some sort of Italian bonds, you get a contagion and it spreads across the world. And before you know it, three days later, no bank is willing to transact money, right? So that's likely to happen, right? And I'm, I'm betting on Japan and Italy being the, the, the two potential you know, elements that basically make this go haywire. But you know what I'm also betting on? I'm betting on the Fed holding a meeting in Switzerland, calling every single country in and saying, let's just fix this. And they'll find some way to rob us and they'll find some way to fix it. The rich will become richer at that point in time and we'll have a crazy 12 months. So I'm, I think that the, the, the financial elites have figured out that you can actually fix any of these problems by calling everybody together and agreeing on a bunch of things that, you know, a hundred years ago we would have considered to be treason, but now, you know, the federal banks are doing it. So it's okay. So I, I think that we, this goes longer than you think. And when you do get to a, um, a, an end with it, all that happens is you get a year of complete chaos followed by a return to normalcy because they'll retweak the system, right? They did that in Greece. Did you know that they, they went into Greek banks and just simply took 30% of people's deposits and said, this is our money. And people are like, oh, the Greeks are going to just slaughter all of their politicians. They're going to be out in the street by the millions. They're going to bring their, their, their pitchforks and they're going to kill, kill them all. Not one Greek politician was even beaten up. The Greeks simply accepted the fact that the government went to their bank accounts, took their money and kept it and never returned it. <laughs> right. I mean, so, so we think that these things will happen. Right. I mean, you know, Trump was thinking that a million people are going to show up. Well, thousands did. But he needed a million people if he wanted a true revolution. So, you know, what's very likely is that we're not going to have a financial revolution. We're going to have a financial scam where at some point the elites will simply take 70% of our debt and say, well, it's gone. And I think they can pull it off. I think they're getting better and better at realizing that the things that we thought we couldn't do, we can do. I mean, you look at the Fed today compared to the Fed in 2007. This almost seems like they're running a parallel financial government because they do shit without even asking Congress, right? They release a trillion dollars into the market and inform Congress after 10 days. So I think we have a fourth branch of government, the most powerful, the Federal Reserve. And I think that's what's helping people in real estate, because as you know, that when the, every time the Fed puts a trillion dollars into the U.S. economy, the real estate goes up mm -hmm. because it's a fixed asset. Mm -hmm. We can't make any more real estate, right? How can you simply flood the market with one trillion homes the next day by clicking a computer button? You can't even do that to one home. Yep. Yep. No, you're absolutely right. And I think that's exactly what we've been observing is, and I tell people it's, it's so much more competitive now than even pre-COVID. I mean, you know, like the past decade had just been this phenomenal wave of appreciation. You had so many investors and liquidity coming into the market. But now, like you, as you alluded to, just post-COVID, it's just crazy how competitive the space is and how much liquidity is just being constantly injected into this space and particularly the commercial real estate space. So I don't um, think injected is a word. I think forced is a word. Like yeah. it's almost like the Federal Reserve has this massive big syringe and they've got, you know, a million pound weight sitting on it. And it's, it's basically forcing this, this money into the economy, forcing liquidity in 50 different ways into the economy. I just, this stuff is 
so over the top, insanely bizarre that if you had written today's present as a fiction book 20 years ago, they would have laughed at you for being a science fiction writer. <laughs> you would have earned that title, the mad scientist, right? <laughs> I look much less matter by comparison. <laughs> yeah, I'd like to pivot a little bit and, and talk a little bit more about how this, all these things that we've talked about have an impact on real estate in particular, whether that be multifamily, which is really what our show is focused about. And I know you have some other asset classes that you really like. Tell us a little bit about your prediction for this year and, and some coming years on, on how it affects the asset class overall. Cody just mentioned a little bit, you know, we're seeing tremendous competition in markets like ours, like Houston. Mm -hmm. you, you said the same thing in some other markets like Phoenix. Uh, tell us a little bit about that. So what I expect is, and I'll, I'll make a prediction, currently multifamily cap rates in the U.S. are at 5.1%. That's all, class A, B, C together is at 5.1. And we've held to that number now for almost a year. Now, it, it's obviously been dropping. It used to be 8% at the height of the 2008 financial crisis. And since then, it's been dropping. It's a very kind of smooth curve decline as interest rates have gone down. And my prediction is that you are going to see that number drop below five. And I think that my prediction is in a year, maybe a year and a half, we end up at about 4.8 cap. So that 0.3 cap differential is a very substantial increase in prices, and it has nothing to do with rents, right? You, you know, in the next year and a half, if rents don't increase by $1, you're still going to have a very large increase in prices because of that cap compression that we've been seeing all along. So my prediction is that a whole bunch of syndicators that bought stuff in the last three or four years and overpaid well, you just caught a break. I think that all of you guys are going to be, if you can hold on and not mess up your properties, I think that you're going to have a great cap rate exit. You may not hit your, your you know, goals on rehabs. You may not hit your goals on rent bumps, but I think that it may not matter. If you get two thirds of the way there, your cap compression will take you the rest of the way there. So I think this is a phenomenal time to continue to buy, but be very cautious because like every other market, you know, that is bullish. This is a very bullish market. There's a great level of aggression right now in the marketplace. A lot of people want to buy. People have been on the sidelines for nine months, assuming the worst, and it didn't happen. And really nothing bad's happened. I mean, if you compare today's multifamily market with 12 months ago, you know, what's the difference, right? It looks the same. So to me, I think that you are going to see a increase in competition, a very significant increase in competition. But that is not a reason to stay out of the marketplace because the Fed's given us another five years of a glorious multifamily market. We just have to be careful not to overpay, right? And, and me on my side, I'm very thrilled with where I am because I pivoted to becoming a developer and building my own multifamilies three or four years ago. And now they're coming to market. I built Coyote Creek. You know, that one's about two, two and a half years old. It's now leasing up. And I'm leasing my one bedrooms $130 higher than my performa. Can you imagine what happens if you go 130 bucks higher? My two bedrooms are about 75 above performa. My three bedrooms are 80 bucks above performa. So in about four months, I'm going to refinance and, and give my investors 100% of their money back and then hold it for 10 years because it's, it's in a very, very fast growing market in terms of rent increases. St. George has seen about a 2.5% rent increase during the pandemic. So 
Uh, same sort of story for, you know, Mesa. I mean, we, we have a property in Mesa. Mesa seeing their terrific rent increases. So we've, we've used demographics to follow these markets around the U.S. and say, you know, right now it doesn't pay to be a buyer. So I'm going to be a seller. And of course, that takes three years to, you know, gather the money and, and go through the zoning and the entitlement, the surveys and the environmentals and, and then basically build a sucker and then lease it up and then wait three months, and then either refinance the heck out of it or sell it. So I'm absolutely thrilled with where we are. Um, we built 46 townhomes in uh, Raleigh, North Carolina, near, near, near Durham. And uh, we are projected to our investors that we're going to exit at 155. We are either tomorrow or on Monday signing a contract. Instead of selling them to the general public at 155 and paying 4% commissions, we're exiting at 170 and they're buying the whole thing, yeah, right? No. So there's an incredible pivot that is happening with more and more syndication companies understanding that with interest rates like this, it makes sense to build. And I, I, one of the things I want to forecast is not only are cap rates going to come down, you're going to see more and more companies go the construction route because they're frustrated that they're, they're having to buy class C 40-year-old properties at 120 or $130,000 a unit. And the math there is just crazy. Yeah, we've actually started to see that behavior already. You know, you, you're hearing this topic of development coming around more and more. And so I completely agree with that. I want to go back, though, to those who are still syndicating, buying existing assets. You mentioned that we're going to continue to see this cap rate compression, increase in valuations. But as we have that cap rate compression, yields are getting lower and lower, right? It's hard, unless you're in development, it's harder to get you know, the yields that typically we've seen over the past decade. What do you think is the return expectations now from passive investors looking to invest in these type of assets? I feel like it hasn't changed yet. I think it's going to, I think it has to, but I don't feel like we're quite there yet. What's your perception on that? I think the return expectation, the, the returns have been changing for the last four years. The performance haven't been changing. You understand what I just said, Right. The returns have been changing. They've been going down for three or four years, but performas are sticking to what they were three to four years ago, because I think that we have a lot of young syndicators that have come into the marketplace that are afraid that their investors' mindsets haven't changed. I don't subscribe to that theory, and most established syndicators don't. I am giving my investors a lot less than I used to, and they still invest with us. So we did a recent deal where we gave our investors 37.5% of the equity, we kept 62.5%. We raised $6 million in 19 hours. So I think that's kind of an ex extreme example, obviously. But I think the point that I'm trying to make is that investor expectations are really tied to their level of confidence in you. I don't see any reason why you would not want to switch from 8-pref to 7-pref or even 6 I don't see any reason why you would not bring down your equity multiple, bring down your IRR rate. I think that you will see those properties fly off the shelf. I think that if your project is not selling, you have to look elsewhere for why it's not selling, not your returns. We are not seeing, I mean, and you know, the syndication industry is, is this one pool of, you know, maybe three or 4,000 companies. Do you know that there's many levels of syndication above yours? And those people do not partake. They never show up at a conference. They're billion-dollar companies. And it's standard in those companies to offer a 12 IRR with a six pref. And every project gets subscribed in a day. 
and they, they're buying 50 to $100 million buildings. Uh, they're using Fannie Freddie direct lending, and they're having a great time. So I think that this perception that if I drop my PREF by one, or if I drop my IRR by one or two, my project is somehow going to fund slower is completely nonsensical. All right, Neil. Well, I think, uh, man, this has been a great conversation. Uh, we got a few more minutes left, but any, any additional advice you would give to the audience now, you know, you know, kind of encompassing everything that we've discussed already and your prediction moving forward into 2021, any advice you'd like to give the audience moving forward in this year? Yeah, I think I would like to tell the audience this. You keep your fingers in both boats. I know that it is not fashionable to tell people that single family could be as good as multifamily. That's not a fashionable thing to say because, you know, people tell me, oh, there's no scale and there's this and there's that. No, I mean, multifamily is benefiting from some trends that, you know, that single family is benefiting from a lot of trends that multifamily is not benefiting from. So as we are seeing performance, we're seeing fantastic trends on both sides. And, and you know, even though two years ago we were buying 250 unit buildings for 30 or $40 million, today we're building groups of single family homes and either selling them to consumers or we're selling them as fourplexes to investors. Our yields are better, our risks are lower. And, and you might say, you know, why, why is new construction a lower risk? Well, because building a, a, a townhome takes nine months. Building an apartment complex takes 28 months. Which one do you think is lower risk, right? So when we're looking at that, we're you know pre-selling them you know um, before we even build them, and investors really love that because one of the myths of multi-multi-family is no syndication is long-term wealth building. It does not build long-term wealth. People say this all the time. It's complete bullshit. People talk about depreciation benefits, but they forget to talk about recapture. The average syndicator sells their property in three years. So you get the depreciation benefit in year one and year two, but in year three, when they sell it, all of that gets recaptured. When we sell fourplexes to an investor, they get 27 and a half years of depreciation. They don't sell that fourplex. They've built up about three to four million in equity in a fourplex over 30 years. And when they die, that three to four million, the basis adjusts. So their kids never pay taxes on it. So the kind of product that we are building now is a patient man's game, but it's true wealth building. And that's what I've, I've looked at because I, I, after you know, doing 23 syndications, I realized I couldn't say with a straight face that this was wealth building. I think it's a phenomenal product. People make money, but wealth, long-term wealth is a different concept than multifamily. So I, I would advise people to be aware of all of the pros and cons. We, we tend to be overly fixated on all the benefits of multifamily. I appreciate that. That's some very good insight. So all right, Neil, will tell us what's coming up. Uh, any, any big events that we should be expecting from you and Grow Capitalist? Oh, yeah. So I, um, I, I want you to check out multifamilyu.com. There's an event that I am teaching. I teach it in Jan and Feb with slightly different content as, as, as you know, most of the research reports either come out in Jan or Feb, so the content changes. So I teach it multiple times. I taught it two days ago. And I had about 1,700 people signed up that, that watched it. We, unfortunately, we can only have 500 watch because that's our Zoom license, but there were about 200 watching on Facebook. So we sent out a link on Facebook saying, hey, you can go watch here for, for free, even if you can't get into Zoom. So we had about 700 people watch that first time. I'd encourage everyone to watch it because 
it goes much further beyond a podcast can because I can't display anything to you on a podcast, but it talks about different asset classes beyond single family, beyond multifamily and what that would look like. So check that out on multifamilyu.com. I think, uh, I think you'll really like it. Uh, the other thing that's coming up that I'm super passionate about that I want to invite everyone is in, in Feb or March, we will be doing a two-part, one-hour presentation, so two hours long, about the massive and destructive impact of climate change on real estate. So if for half of America that doesn't believe in climate change, please don't show up. Clearly, nothing is going to go wrong. The other half that believes, and keep in mind, 99% of the people that control money in the United States believe in climate change. So keep that in mind. 99% of the people that make large billion-dollar investment decisions not only believe in climate change, but are reacting to it. Those people, you're welcome to show up to my events. I think what I'm going to tell you is not good news. It's devastating. Um, I, you know, there are projections that I'm going to make about how the massive growth of the Southeast will reverse and will reverse a little bit sooner than most people are comfortable with. Luckily, it's not going to affect your next indication, but I think it'll affect the one you do after that one. The one you do four or five years from now will be significantly impacted. I'll share with you places in Florida and places in New York state that will be underwater, not underwater, but to the point where no one will offer insurance on those properties. And you'll be, you'll be stunned at just how broad uh, a swath of land that is. The, the impact on Florida is going to be absolutely devastating. And for anyone who thinks this is not going to happen, it's all 30 years in the future, I encourage you, earlier yesterday, a report came out measuring sea level rise. The actual sea level rise was 2x the worst projection than anyone has ever made. It was twice the worst projection. And one can argue whether we are causing it or not. Who gives a shit? The sea level rise is there. You can't, uh, you can't argue with the fact that the sea level is rising, regardless of whether man's causing it or earth's causing it, it's going to impact real estate in a devastating way. So that's kind of my passion and focus for this year to kind of bring that to bear. Very interesting. Looking forward to tuning into that one. Uh, this is the first time I think I've ever heard those two conversations merging into one. So it'd be a great conversation. Mm-hmm. That's going to be great. Neil, always a pleasure being able to spend time with you. Really, really appreciate all the great insight, man. Look forward to uh, upcoming events and looking forward to having you back again on the show sometime in the future. Sounds good. Thank you, Cody. Thank you, Brian. Thanks, Thanks, Neil. Today's episode was proudly brought to you by Blue Oak Capital. To learn more about Blue Oak Capital and how you can partner with us, visit www.blueoakinvests.com. Tune in next time. 